Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. So tonight is our medieval service. And when I say medieval Christianity, what are your stereotypes? What are your impressions? What are your associations? They burned witches. Everything's dirty, yes. A lot of writing and poor lighting. That's very lyrical of you, Scotty. Yeah, we tend to have a lot of uh, weird associations with medieval Christianity. Hey, Warren, come on in. Um, but part of understanding medieval Christianity starts with understanding what the heck the word medieval means. Does anybody know what medieval means? That's right. It means middle age. So it begs the question, the middle of what? When we say the middle ages, what are we talking about the middle of? And that word actually comes from the middle between uh, two different eras. One is, if you go to the next slide, yeah, the fall of Rome in 476 AD. And uh, those are the Goths over there uh, taking down the statue of Caesar there. And then in the, in the Renaissance, uh, they called themselves the rebirth in the 1400s. And it's when they got back to making naked statues of people. They were very excited about this. So they saw themselves as the rebirth of society. They felt like they were something entirely new. And the thing you have to understand is the people in the Renaissance were really big snobs. They looked down on everything that came before them all the way back to the Roman era and said, ah, that's the Middle Ages, right? That's the stuff when not much happened. The in-between, where there wasn't any any culture or innovation or technology, So they called it the middle or the in-between or the dark ages, right? If you've heard it called the dark ages, they even began to look at the great architectural uh, works of the middle ages and say, you know, it's just so dark and gloomy, not like, you know, not like us, these people of light. It's like this backwards barbarian thing. They looked at it and they said, it's like those gods, right? That that destroyed Rome, the, the German barbarians that came in. And so they started calling this kind of architecture Gothic. Like, oh, it's just this, this like, oh, this barbarian dark, like from this old era, despite the fact that it's actually gorgeous and beautiful. Now, what's kind of funny is then the word Gothic, right, comes to mean like dark and spooky, right? So that's how we get from this to that. <laughs> okay, so you can't see it, but Gary is moving from a picture of Gothic architecture with the buttresses and the spires and the gargoyles and the stained glass all pointing our eye up toward God. He's moving from a picture of that to a picture of goth kids from high school or college wearing all black with black lipstick and black eyeliner um, and kind of looking like vampires. So just so if you ever wondered why that is called gothic, it's because a bunch of snobs in the 15th century thought they were better than everybody else. And next time you're in Hot Topic, you can quiz them with that knowledge and it will make you very popular. So they called this whole era Gothic, right? Or the Dark Ages, an era where there was no learning or culture enlightenment. But it's not true. It's actually kind of a lame stereotype. There's actually beautiful writers and thinkers and theologians, renewal movements and the birth of universities, poets and songwriters and saints. It's not just this stagnant and gloomy time. It's this time where there's actually amazing saints living out their faith. And I hope to get to introduce you to a couple of them tonight, people we should learn from. 
So that's my job tonight. I have 25 minutes to convince you that the medieval era was awesome. So we're going to go through a thousand years of history in 25 minutes. So you guys ready? All right, let's do it. Okay. So 400 AD, we got to go, we got to start our story in 400 AD. At that point, the Roman Empire had been around for about a thousand years. 312, Constantine converts and begins this process of Christianizing the empire. So by the time we get to 400 AD, pretty much everyone in Rome is a Christian, even if only in me. There's a lot of nominalism people join because it's what's going on in society. But then in 410 AD, this happens. Remember these guys, the Goths, right? They come and they sack Rome. And at that point, kind of all hell breaks loose. You can follow this fun map over there on the right. The Vandals take North Africa, the Visigoths take over Spain, the Ostrogoths take over Italy, the Franks move into Gaul, and the Angles and the Saxons, our old friends, take over Rome and Britain. And by 500 AD, the Western Roman Empire is gone. And while some of these tribes were actually Christians, a lot of them were not. And suddenly, most of Western Europe is actually pagan again. And one of the places that was pagan where Christianity hadn't really come yet was Ireland. Ireland had never been conquered by the Romans, and it was a tribal society. And one of the things that they had a habit of doing is you can see how close England is there. So they'd sail over the Irish Sea and they would kidnap slaves. And around 400 AD, they captured a 14-year-old British boy named Patrick. There he is, our famous St. Patrick. And they brought him over, and he was actually in Western Ireland, and uh, when he was kidnapped, he was basically nominally Christian. He'd been raised by a Christian father, but, he, but in his own writings, he said he didn't think much of it. He wasn't much of a practicing Christian. But all of a sudden, he's kidnapped, and he's brought to Western Ireland, and he's spending all day long outside, barefoot, tending sheep, and he begins to talk to God. And he begins to have this vibrant prayer life. And he begins to grow in this faith of God and have this vibrant faith in God and be outside all day long just praying to God. And after six years in be, being in slavery, he hears a voice telling him that he would soon go, soon go home and that his ship was ready. And he gets up and he walks 200 miles to the east coast of Ireland and there finds a ship headed for Britain and pays his passage and goes home. And he gets back to Britain and for a time, he's happy to be there, but he has trouble fitting in after spending six years wandering around in the hills, talking to God all day long. And he begins to seek out God again. And one day he has this vision. And this is what he writes. He says, I saw a man coming, as it were, from Ireland. His name was Victorious, and he carried many letters, and he gave me one of them. I read the heading, The Voice of the Irish. As I began the letter, I imagined in that moment that I heard the voice of those very people who were near the wood of Fuclough, which is beside the Western Sea, and they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. And I, uh, Patrick took that seriously, and he returns to Ireland, and he becomes a missionary there. And we don't know exactly what happened next, um, we, but by, pirate, by Patrick's own writings, he says that he baptized thousands of people, that he ordained priests, that he converted peasants and wealthy women and the sons of kings, that he was imprisoned and beaten and took up his cross. And yet by 500 AD, Ireland, pagan Ireland has actually become a center of European Christianity. Ireland becomes a place of innovation where there's new prayers and liturgy and new ways of living out the faith. It's actually the first in the Western Europe, it's the first non-Roman church. So you actually get this whole kind of like uh, 
birth in innovation and in, in uh, liturgy and in living out the faith. Um, actually, their song, Be Thou My Vision, actually goes all the way back to this very early area of Celtic spirituality. And as the church grows, they began sending missionaries out. So first, these Irish missionaries, these monks, they go out to Scotland and bring the gospel to Scotland, and then to Anglo-Saxon England, and then to pagan Germany. And essentially, the Irish are the ones who kind of go out and re-evangelize Western Europe. And this is a big part of how Western Europe becomes Christian again. So that's the first part of our story of as Europe kind of falls into chaos and comes back and stabilizes and begins to follow Jesus again. So um, there's many myths about St. Patrick. Uh, he did not actually chase snakes out of Ireland. There were no snakes in Ireland. He may have used the shamrock to explain the Trinity, but if so, it only shows up many years later. And as I learned this week, he probably actually wore blue, not green, believe it or not. But to celebrate the Celtic tradition, we're going to read together a poem called The Breastplate of St. Patrick, which is a very old, famous uh, poem and prayer from early Celtic spirituality. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent with the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of the cherubim, in obedience of angels, in the service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in the predictions of prophets, in the preaching of apostles, in the faith of confessors, in the innocence of holy virgins, in the deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me. God's hand to guard me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from snares of devils, from temptations of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill afar and near. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every mind that thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man that speaks of me, Christ in the eye of all who sees me, Christ in the ears of all who hear me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. All right, so the next part of our story, the high middle ages. So like I said, the Irish are um, one of the people who bring Christianity back to Western Europe. 
Uh, and in many cases, it's actually the Irish monks who copy down the classical tradition. They, re they receive all the works from the uh, Greeks and the Romans and pass it on into Europe. And over time, things in Western Europe actually stabilize. And I should say, I'll keep using the term Western Europe because the story we're telling, this medieval story, is very much a story of Western Europe. If you were to spend, if you were to like zoom out, you'd actually see um, like great centers of learning going on in Constantinople. You'd see the emerging Russian state going on over in Russia. Uh, if you were to go further south, you'd see universities and kind of high points of learning in places like Spain and in Cairo and in Baghdad. But that's not the story we're telling tonight. It's just important to remember that we're looking at like one corner of the world. It just tends to be a corner that's kind of important to our story. So anyway, in the early Middle Ages, society does stabilize for a bit and new kingdoms form and new churches are built. And by 800 AD, there's even a new emperor in Western Europe. Does anybody know who this guy is? Charlemagne, that's right. Um, Charlemagne starts something called the uh, Carolingian Empire, and he actually uh, recruits lots of scholars to come to his court. There's a time, this thing called the Carolingian Renaissance, and if we had an extra half hour, we'd spend lots of good time looking at that, but we don't. So basically, Charlemagne's sons, uh, they can't hold this empire together, and then these guys show up. Here, Gary is showing a picture of the Vikings, so scary people from the north. But right next to it, he also has a picture of a guy from the Vikings football team. And they cause lots of problems, and they basically destabilize Western Europe again. But by 1100 AD, something very different is starting to happen. All that learning going on in the rest of the world is trickling back into Western Europe. And new trades are open, routes are opening up, bringing new wealth and ideas into Europe. And in the 1100s, there's something called the 12th century Renaissance. So it's actually a really kind of a fascinating century. Uh, it's during this time that modern universities are formed, the University of Bologna in 1088, the University of Paris, and there's Oxford down below. Um, this is the heights of the scholastic movement, figures like Anselm, who we saw in the very beginning, and Thomas Aquinas, who wrote these long rational treatises trying to get at what it means to follow God, or even can we prove the existence of God? The 12th century has lots of fun church renewal movements. You have some of these guys, St. Francis over there in the Franciscan movement. There's St. Dominic in the middle, who is part of the academic intellectual tradition. And 10 million bonus points to anyone who can tell me is over on the right there. That is a man named Peter Waldo, who most people have probably not heard of, but he started something called the Waldensian movement. They rejected kind of the excesses of medieval Catholicism. He created the first vernacular translation of the Bible in Western Europe. They believed in the priesthood of all believers and in lay preaching. They are heavily persecuted, but actually survive into the Reformation and are considered in many ways the like first Protestants. So this statue is actually from the Luther Monument in Germany, kind of seen as the, one of the people that looked forward to the Reformation. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this century, but the person I want to tell you about is this person, St. Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard was born in 1098 in Germany, and she was committed to a monastery when she was eight years old. Uh, the monastery she grew up was actually started by an Irish missionary, just to kind of like tie our story all together here. Um, and the monastery she was at doesn't exist anymore, but one of the things we can kind of discern is it must have had an excellent library, because by the time Hildegard starts writing, she 
is fluent with all of the Bible, with Bible, with the history of biblical interpretation, early Christian literature, church fathers like Augustine and Jerome, as well as contemporary figures like Bernard and Hugh of St. Victor. She becomes well-versed in music competi- uh, composition, is actually one of the most prolific composers of the Middle Ages, wrote dozens of chants and hymns and poetry. Apparently she played the dulcimer. She wrote a book on natural history and seemed to know medical knowledge from the Greek and Arab worlds. She once wrote a book documenting all the types of fish you could find in the Rhine Valley. And if that's not nerdy enough for you, she also created her own language, which is, you know, some like next level Tolkien-esque nerdiness, right? Which is to say, if Hildegard were hanging out at Comic-Con, she probably wouldn't have trouble getting a date. When she was 36, she became abbess of her monastery and would go on to found two other monasteries in her life. But what Hildegard was most famous for was actually her visions. Um, As a young child, she began having visions of God and she didn't tell anyone about this for decades. Um, She only her confessor until her forties, she received a vision that told her to write them down. And that work became known as the Scivius. It's a fascinating book. And she actually helped create an illuminated manuscript, um, which if you don't know, is a book that has these kind of hand-drawn illustrations. So she either kind of commissioned these or helped make them. We don't fully know for sure, but these you know, kind of come originally from the creator of this work, which is fascinating. So she wrote these visions down and when she was 50, she sent a copy of them to um, Bernard of Clairvaux, who we've met a couple times. Actually, the first song we sang, that Sacred Head Now Wounded, is by Bernard. He was kind of like the, the Tim Keller of his day. Um, she wrote, uh, she gave it to him and to the Pope, and they both loved it and began promoting it. And Hildegard actually becomes kind of a celebrity. Her monastery becomes this pilgrimage site where all sorts of people show up. And in an era, of course, when women weren't allowed to preach, Hildegard then spent the next 20 years traveling around Germany preaching. She drew huge crowds. She would call herself this poor little female figure and then go on to critique priests and bishops and even the Pope. She once called the Holy Roman Emperor, the most powerful man in Europe, a juvenile fool. And do you know what the Holy Roman Emperor did to her? Nothing. He knew better than to miss with Hildegard. I just appreciated this. This is how Hildegard talked about herself. She said, there once was a king sitting on his throne. Around him stood great and wonderful, wonderfully beautiful columns ornamented with ivory, bearing the banners of the king with great honor. Then it pleased the king to raise a small feather from the ground, and he commanded it to fly. The feather flew not because of anything in itself, but because the air bore it along. Thus am I a feather on the breath of God. Amen. Like I said, uh, Hildegard was one of the most prolific composers of this era. So I wanted to give you guys just, it's real short. This is two minutes, a picture of what chants sounded like in that era. And this is a song by Hildegard. It's called Odie Aperuit which means today was open unto us a shut-up gate.
So that's Hildegard, and that's the High Middle Ages. So one of the reasons the Renaissance folks thought of themselves as the rebirth of society is that by all accounts, the 14th century was horrible. Um, there was the Great Famine in 13, uh, 15 to 17 that killed 10% of the population. In 1346 is when the Black Death first came to Europe and over the next five years killed 30 to 60% of the population. In 1378, a corrupt vote meant that for the next 40 years, there's actually two different popes vying for power. They're rival popes ruling at the same time. For a while, there's actually three. There's constant war in England and France and Germany. And one of the things that arises out of this era is mysticism. There are less attempts to reason your way to God and more attempts to say that God is beyond reason, which makes sense when you watch, you know, 50% of your town die. Um, one of the most famous books of the era was called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is a great name for an emo band. Um, and I used to own this devotional based on The Cloud of Unknowing called Where Only Love Can Go, which is a pretty good summary of um, what The Cloud of Unknowing is about. The idea that you can't really reason your way to God, that God is beyond your intellect. And in fact, if you think you can grasp God, you're probably further away than if you just kind of submit to God. And I, I just like this quote, yeah, we cannot think our way to God. He can be loved, but not thought. So instead of, of trying to think your way to God, you need to go into the cloud of unknowing, the place where only love can go. The means to God is love. And we find God not through intellectual pursuit, but through love. And it might sound like crazy mystical stuff. It's not the easiest book to read, but it was actually written to a 24-year-old novice on how to begin to pray. And it says things like this. With an empty mind and open heart, let yourself be naked before grace. For I tell you this, one loving blind desire for God alone is more valuable in itself, more pleasing to God and to the saints, more beneficial to your own growth, and more helpful to your friends, both living and dead, than anything else you could do. So when the Renaissance comes around, a lot of this stuff gets buried. A lot of people kind of leave it in the dark. And again, it comes across as that kind of gothic, dark, gloomy stuff that's to be left behind. And for a lot of centuries, it really was all through the Renaissance and through the Enlightenment. And it's really, in many ways, not until after World War II, when somehow the most educated most reasoned, most technologically advanced society in history somehow unleashed the worst war in human history. And kind of like the 14th century with all its horrors, people in the 20th century asked, what, what does it mean to find God on the other side of the Holocaust? And they began to realize these mystics might have something to say to us that maybe reason alone is not enough. And one of the people that got rediscovered during this time is Julian of Norwich. Um, she was born in 1343 um, in Norwich, England, and as a child survived the Black Death, which came to her town. At age 30, she became violently ill. Um, she was on her deathbed. The priest came to give her uh, the last rites. She says that she began to lose her sight and feel physically numb. And when she did, she saw the figure of Jesus on the cross begin to bleed. And over the next several hours, she had 16 mystical visions of God. 
And if you want to read all about them, you can read about them in the uh, a book called The Revelation of Divine Love. Um, it's actually the oldest known book in English by a woman. And she shares about uh, receiving these visions. Um, she says, from the time these things were first revealed, I had often wanted to know what was our Lord's meaning. It was more than 15 years after that I was answered in my spirit's understanding. You would know our Lord's meaning in this thing. Know it well. Love was his meaning. Who showed it to you? Love. Why did he show you? Love. Why did he show it? For love. Hold on to this and you will know and understand love more and more. And she repeats some of the same themes as we find in the cloud of unknown. Here's some of the quotes from the book. Everything that is good is God. Whatever goodness we experience in this life is truly a taste of God, for it is God. Anytime we look at our maker with love, our importance in our own eyes diminishes, and we are filled with awe and humility and love for others. And lastly, she says, and thus our good Lord answered to all my questions and doubt that I may make, saying fully comfortably, I make all things well. I can make all things well. I will make all things well. And I shall make all things well. And thou shalt see thyself that all manner of things shall be well. And this is the phrase that Julian has become most famous for. She actually uses this as kind of a refrain throughout her writing. All shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. That's where we're going to close tonight. Remember that when Julian lived, right, this wasn't some cheap sentiment. She lived through a time of great turmoil. She received this vision as she thought she was dying. And this is how it concludes. All shall be well. All shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. So as we close, I hope that's the gift that I can give you from medieval Christianity. I'm going to invite you guys to take a couple minutes to reflect. I'll go get the kiddos. But just, just, I invite you to receive this phrase. Receive it from God. Think about the things in your life that are stressing you out or making you anxious or making you afraid and receive this. All shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. The ways that sin and death are in your life, the ways that you have forgotten God, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.